1: Hello and welcome to The Ruck. Usually on this podcast we discuss the issues of the week and then we move on. The subject of dementia in rugby, however, is one that I don't think we'll be moving on from for weeks or even years. As you will no doubt be aware, three former rugby professionals last week went open about the fact that they are suffering from early onset dementia. That's Alex Popham, Michael Lippman and England's 2003 World Cup winner, Steve Thompson. They're all in their early 40s. They are represented by a law firm, Rylands, that will this week file a claim for negligence against World Rugby, the RFU and the Welsh Rugby Union. This, there is no doubt, brings the future of the whole game very much under threat, at least certainly at the professional level. I'm Owen Slot, and to discuss all that I'm joined by Stephen Jones, Laurence Delaglio, who of course played in that 2003 team with Thompson, and Sam Peters. Sam is the journalist who has done more than anyone to forewarn the game of the possible dangers... He was writing about this stuff almost a decade ago. Unfortunately, we now know that he was right. So uh, hello, gents, and welcome to uh, this um, a particularly serious uh, edition of The Ruck. Uh, good to have you on. Good to uh, have you on, Sam, in particular. You were on this podcast about three years ago with your daughter mewing, <laughs> crying in the background. But um, she's probably at university by now,
2: is she? Not quite. Just about to start school, Owen. But uh, yeah, it feels like a, a long time ago. Well, well, exciting days, exciting days. But listen, on the subject
1: um, that, that's really rattled the game this week, and as I say, I think is going to um, challenge us in the game for, for a, a long time to come. Lawrence, can, can we just talk to you initially about, uh, about Steve Thompson? That, um, and at what stage did you realise that, that he was struggling so badly?
3: Well, to be honest with you... Um... You know, it's the first time I've heard of it, which is a worry. I mean, Steve's not spent a lot of time with um, since the uh, since he retired, since I retired, primarily because uh, he moved out to Dubai and was working out in Dubai. And it's not really a place that's on my list of places to go. But uh, I mean, listen, first of all, you know, it's very sad really to, to hear and to read quite graphically that the struggles that he's had. You know, as I said, I don't think myself or, or any of the team were aware of it. So he's either, you know, been on the other side of the world or, or just keeping his thoughts to himself until um, until he's got together with uh, with, with some of his uh, some, of the, some of the other people and one of the lawyers and it's always something that w- when we heard the the case of the NFL in American football it was all something that was that immediately thought well that's strange because why why hasn't that happened in rugby just now so I think it's always been in the rearview mirror um, as something that is there as a threat coming up behind you literally but but all of a sudden you know with this hitting the news it, it's very much firmly in focus, and you know I'm really interested to hear what Sam's going to say. I guess the, the the question I would say is: I mean, obviously, I played with Steve in the World Cup final. I played for a number of years after that, for another five or six years. Clearly, concussion has always been a, a bit of a threat. It's got bigger and bigger because of the number of collisions and and the um, and the size of those collisions in the last uh, uh, ten or fifteen years. But I think, as a as a as a ex player, uh, that a lot has been done by rugby to try and come to terms with concussion and deal with concussion. I think you, we, the sport could still continue to do a lot more, but there's no doubt that when the NFL came out with their commission, I think rugby quite quickly to, um, to put together a series of protocols and have those protocols in place so that players could safely be taken away from, from the field of play. I think the protocols are, are at a reasonable level. I was um, I was commentating on a game at the weekend where, uh, just to give you an example, where a lot of early collisions in the game, there was a collision between Jake Ball and, and Toby Faletel, head on head. Jake Ball was immediately removed from uh, the field of play to, uh, to go and have an HIA. Toby Faletel wasn't, but was subsequently removed about two or three minutes later because the independent doctor had, uh, had been watching the game uh, and has decided that the collision warranted um, him being removed from the field. Both players subsequently failed at the HIA and were not allowed to return. So nothing like that existed when I played. You know, 10 or 15 years on, the question is, has the game done enough to address the area of concussion? The answer is, I'm not quite sure, but it's done a, a lot more than was available in the, in the last 10 or 15 years, that's for sure.
1: So, Sam, can you talk us through your story, if you like, from um, when you started writing about this and, and how it was received? I mean, is your view that the game moved fast enough?
2: Yeah, so in 2013 was the year I sort of really started to look at this issue, Owen, and the season I looked at it in really real detail. The NFL case was kind of going on in the background and I wasn't overly interested in it, frankly. I've, I read a couple of stories and was like, wow, that's that's not great, obviously. But NFL being the sport that it was and the, they had the helmeted sports it was, where guys would just whacking into each other, using their heads as a as a missile, essentially as a weapon, was was different. That was certainly the line that was been taken by all the senior medics in rugby at the time, that they, in some way, that those head injuries that were being suffered were completely different to head injuries in, in rugby. I mean, I'd, I'd watched the game evolve. I left school in 1995, used to play for Richmond. Um, as the game turned professional, saw it radically change over a very, very short period of time in the, in the late 90s and kept a very, very close eye. I had some really, really good friends who who went on, who much better players than I was, who who went on to play professionally and sort of had a really interesting kind of take into the dressing room, essentially, and was always interested in the position that players were being put in and what were being asked of them as essentially employees. But moving through as I became a journalist, I I sort of just never really wrote about it because it wasn't an interesting subject. I was always interested in injuries. But again, as, as the sort of 2013 season, I guess 2012, 2013, around that time, I just started I'd seen what I felt I think 2007 we saw Lewis Moody twice knocked out against Tonga in the World Cup I was at that game and covered it didn't feel right to me at all but had no scientific or basis to say that this is clearly wrong it just felt wrong and then as I said I just kept speaking to people and and trying to understand what the the scene was in in the sport and what was being asked of players and I think 2013 premiership final, you may remember Toby Flood was knocked down in that place, Newcastle against Northampton, accidental collision involving Dan Cole and, and Courtney Laws. And then going into 2013 Lions Tour, which were covered and it was in the third test when George Smith, of course, was allowed back on the field. And, and that was the moment, I think, where he went back onto the field. And I saw him the media centre afterwards, where he was actually put up to interview for the media, like was incredibly... Um, And shamefully, I didn't go and speak to him, but I just remember seeing him on the other side of a room and just thinking, my God, he just does not look right, this guy. And again, I didn't even report that in my Mail on Sunday piece. But then as I came back that summer and had a bit of downtime, started to really investigate what was going on in the NFL and heard about Barry O'Driscoll, the world rugby doctor who resigned his position in protest at the sport's stance on on concussion and and how little they'd done at that point. Um, to really move it forward. From there began the Mail on Sunday's campaign and that was the period of time so 2013, seven and a half, eight years ago getting on for and yeah you ask about the reaction to it I mean probably better to ask the other guys around me because it certainly felt when I walked into some press rooms and into some dinners and various places you know people might have been having conversations which perhaps stopped when I got in the room but I was I was okay with that you know I didn't become a journalist to become everyone's. Uh, best pal, thank goodness, as Stephen has to, but, you know, it's not your job. And, you know, I just saw a story that was there and hadn't been reported and felt quite strongly that it needed to be. And, and that's why I started writing about it. And it was, I was coming at it from a player's perspective. And that that was the sort of genesis of the story. Alan.
3: Thanks for sharing that, Sam. I'm, I mean, I'm curious to understand a little bit, dig a bit more deeper into it, because I don't believe I truly understand, what, you know, what's being said about uh, about the governing bodies that are being sued because my understanding and please correct me if I 'm wrong but my basic understanding of the print you know everything you've said is, is right and the game is uh, you know was in, in this place and now it's in this place and maybe it could be in a few more years time in in a very different place but when the NFL report was commissioned into American football and head collisions and the concussion what they deduced or what they found was that the that the the sports had already commissioned a search into head injuries and they failed to do anything about it if you as an employee are participating in a sport where there's been a ton of research done on 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 the on the laws of that sport and on the collisions of that sport and then the information is withheld I think you have a massive case to answer as I understand it Sam and please correct me if I'm wrong but but the governing bodies of the RFU World Rugby and the WRU once that report was read and the information was taken on board, maybe they started to take the, 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 the whole subject of concussion much more seriously. And I think they didn't withhold information. They actually implemented a series of protocols from that moment onwards, which, which continued to be reviewed on a regular basis. And as far as I can work out, we are one of the very few sports that still has that 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 kind of level of of protocol. Now whether they're right or wrong or whether they should should do more, that's another matter, but the, the whole area of have they done enough once they read that NFL report to to move the area of concussion forward in rugby union, I would argue I don't again I don't know the answer to that, but they've done more than most of most sports have. So uh, I'm fascinated to know exactly what grounds these lo- these lawyers are pushing this case, because I, I really do understand it's a serious matter, but it, it does have a, a whiff of, have you been at work about it?
1: So Sam, on that, so t- 2013, when you started writing, I mean, it, it is the first answer to what Lawrence is asking. What, what kind of reception did you get? Did people want to know? Did they say, oh, Sam, that's really worrying. We must get you into the RFU offices and discuss this immediately. Or, um, I mean, my, my memory or impression is that um, you were treated like a, a bit of a
2: pariah. Yes, they did want to get me into the RFU offices, but more to give a controlled interview under pretty strict sort of rules and, and ground rules as to, as to where the conversation was going and how the, how the story would be presented that was about three to four weeks after um, Mm -hmm. I first started writing. It really isn't a big thing for me, like how how I was received or how the story was received. I think, you know, might the,
1: not be, that might not be a big thing for you, Sam. But the fact, but 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 it is important in that. Did rugby want to know about it? I mean, that's, uh, that's a
2: good question. Yeah, no, I, th- I think no, they didn't know. I think I think rugby didn't really want to know about it. I think it still doesn't really want to hear it. There was an element within my own newspaper at the time, The Mail on Sunday, who described it as ambulance chasing, as Lawrence to uh, alluded to there. I think what this comes down to is is duty of care, and this is where. The NFL and Rugby Union, it's very, very hard to compare the two sports because, of course, the NFL's been professional for over a century and and Rugby Union's been professional for just over 25 years. The fact that the RFU hadn't done this big body of research was more symptomatic of of that. But I think what the legal experts will argue, and, of course, I'm not a legal expert, and I think what the lawyers are going to argue here is that the RFU and World Rugby knew enough... In the 90s the late 90s and early 2000s but didn't act soon enough let's remember that bill beaumont 1982 was advised to retire from the sport this is the chairman of world rugby now and was advised to retire from the sport on the basis that if he continued to play and continue to re- get concussed he risked long-term neurodegenerative problems and of course stopped as soon as that advice occurred you know. The game turned professional in 1995, as a lot of this work was being done by the NFL. And I think the lawyers will argue that, A, not enough was done in those early days uh, of professionalism. It was, as so many of us have heard the term described like the Wild West in those days, players were beasted in training. Well, you've heard that question, Lawrence, you're, not, you're shaking your head, but you know that that term's been used a lot to describe those days. And I think, in fact, even guys like Sean Edwards have described the sport as being like that. The the amount of training that was being asked, the amount of the hours that played, and you know, even hearing Martin Raftery, the world world rugby's medical uh, advisor, say to the uh, only recently that 85% of player load comes from training, that just doesn't add up. Uh, it doesn't make sense that that's the case. Uh, why are tra- players training as much as they are? And indeed, why did they? <laughs> Why did they train as hard as they did back in those days? But you know, they're all all questions that will come out in court, and, and I think they're 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 the big issues. Did the sport move fast enough at that time?
4: I think first of all um, that uh, the reason we're all here and the reason we have journalism is that I put Sam's um, campaign in the same orbit as, as David Walsh with Lance Armstrong, Marie Colvin, people who just almost gave up their lives and certainly popularity and everything to follow a story and followed it through when it was lonely. And I, to my shame, until Sam and I worked together on the paper, I hadn't really gone into it. When I, when we did work together, I thought, Crumbs, he's got a great campaign. I don't think we ever did enough in our paper, that's my paper, about the debate. But at the top of this pile, eight people have been officially diagnosed with early-onset dementia. Now, I don't think you're chasing an ambulance if you've got dementia, uh, and you cannot ignore that. I really give 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 you credit, Sam, for battering through, and I hope you feel a bit now like David Walsh felt when Lance Armstrong caved in at, at his feet. And some of the stuff that comes out, this stuff about training loads and all that, if you call off the, so many bloody games, you wouldn't have to train so often. So the idea that this ridiculous number of games is safe is rubbish as well, and When I've looked into it the last few weeks, I am a staggered by the number of different opinions there are by educated medical scientists. This is not the current uh, players we're talking about. We can talk about them later. But these people, the the whole case is whether the intelligence was there when Steve Thompson and all these, these guys were playing. At that time, did World Rugby have enough information to stop it happening. And that's, that is the first and last bit of the case. Current players is, just, is totally different.
3: i take on board everyone's, uh, everyone's views on this and, and everyone's entitled to come at it from a slightly different angle. You know, I feel desperately sorry for the, the players who've been diagnosed with dementia. I really do. If I was in that position, I'd, I'd like to think people would feel the same way about me. From a legal point of view, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated to really get to the bottom of what they are going to contest because as I understand it, you know, these, this group of players are now on their third set of lawyers. So it's clearly been looked at by one or two and, and they've they felt that for whatever reason, it, the case, yeah, of course it's a serious case, but, but is it, you know, can we take on the governing bodies with the, uh, you know, with the challenge that we're trying to take it on? The other question I'd like to pose is that, you know, the, there is a duty of care from a governing body, from an employer to an employee, but there's also a duty of care from an employee to himself. Who is responsible for the duty of care as a professional rugby player? Is it, is it the club you play for? Is it your union? Or, is it, or, or do you as a player have a responsibility and a duty of care to make sure that you're in a good state? So the point I'm trying to make is that even in the early days when, when, when we were sat down saying how many hours should we train a, a day, you know, I have a duty of care as captain of my team and, 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 and for myself to say to my club coach, I'm not going out and playing that. I'm not training that hard. Have I seen players themselves who've been bashed on the head in a game walk up to the bar and go and have, fill themselves up with five or six pints of beer after the game? The answer is yes. Now, surely they, as a, as a player, have a duty of care to themselves. There's no way that alcohol, after pretty serious head collision, is going to be in any way good for you. But yet players took it upon themselves to, to have uh, to that. Now, maybe you could say, well, the medic should, should advise them against that. But even when I started playing rugby at the age of eight, Okay, I worked out pretty quickly that this was a this was quite a tough sport and was you know was not for the uh, faint-hearted. You know, it's a, and and as I got older and older and the game got more and more professional. When I took when I took the field of play, I knew that I was gonna I was putting myself my body in, in harm's way. Now I had 14, 15 operations during my rugby career. Thankfully, I haven't had too many since, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that I may have to by the end of my you know by the time I. I finish. But the duty of care works both ways as well.
1: Lawrence, I get that. And you're right. It's become a almost an accepted that players have to be held back sometimes because all they want to do is go out and support their team, et cetera. But um, I just want to ask you, because you, you played in that area, you played with Steve Thompson, you, you've read this stuff. I mean, how's it been for you personally these last few days? Have you got to the position where you've looked in the mirror and, and worried about yourself? Have Has your wife said to you, you know, Lawrence, I feel a bit uncomfortable about this.
3: Yes, of course. You, you, you do sort of think to yourself, well, are professional brains wired any differently to, to to amateur rugby players, for instance? I mean, I've always struggled with the notion that a, a professional rugby player can have a um, an HIA protocol and be allowed to return to the field, but an amateur rugby player has to have a three-week rest after he gets banged on the head. You know, why is the amateur rugby brain wired any differently to a professional? So... You know, did they come up with the HIA protocol as a way of continuing the game? There's lots of things that I've always questioned. And the one thing I would say, and the one thing I do think has to come out the back of this, is a lot of things are done for a player when he's, when he's very much an employee of that club or, or that country. But how much is done for players when they finish playing rugby, life after rugby? Because, all I, you know, I retired 12 years ago now. You know, once my contract with Wasps terminated and I got on very well with Wasps, I was there nearly 20 years, there's no medical assistance after you finish playing rugby. There's no brain, I mean, maybe rugby players should have brain scans once a year, like a full, H, you know, full 360 degree medical, just to check what sort of state they're in, you know? And, and certainly nothing like that has been afforded to me or any of my colleagues. And maybe that's something that, where there should be a duty of care, because let's be honest, we don't quite know yet what the uh, consequences of playing rugby professionally are, are like. And, and I think if someone maybe monitored Steve Thompson once or twice a year, we would have been able to diagnose this problem a little bit earlier.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
3: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to
0: 11. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Sam, just want to ask your opinion on one. What- one of the um, uh, items of discussion that's that sort of been particularly prevalent over the last week is the way I understood it, it is uh, until last week, if a player retired and he said, I've never had a concussion, then you probably go, oh, you, you'll be all right then. I thought if a, if a player had five concussions or 10 concussions, then, oh, well, that's the, the more concussions, the more worrying. But. What we've been talking about in the last week is this sub-concussions, which is mm-hmm. it's every time you have a, a, a minor collision or a small bang to the head that at the time you just don't even might not even notice. And certainly, that's what Alex Popham, the Welsh former pro uh, international, was, was saying. Was, was he reckons he's had maybe a uh, hundred thousand of those over the, all the trainings and the matches. Every every collision. If we're adding those up, then surely you know the game's in trouble.
2: Well, I mean, the issue of subconcussive blows has been discussed for, for quite a long time obviously it's got getting quite a lot of attention now I think the thing to understand with with rugby union and again comparing it to the NFL and perhaps trying to understand how it can be compared if it is possible to compare the physicality of the sport but you know someone like Lawrence or a you know a six or seven these days will carry what well, how many times they'll 15, 16 carries in a game up to, you know, maybe 17, 18 tackles in a match, maybe more, you know, oft, often more. I mean, remember Saracen's Burger making best part of 30 tackles in a Champions Cup final a few years back. The carries in the game, the rucks that you hit, the scrums that you hit, you know, the amount of those potentially concussive scenarios where, again, this sub-concussive blow issue is is a risk factor is infinitely higher for a rugby player than it is in NFL, where you might, you know, you've got a squad of 70 odd players who, you know, you might be just dropped onto the field to to carry out your specific skill. And you may only take three or four contacts in an entire match. So that is an area of great concern for rugby, obviously. Um, Just going back to a really important point, which I think Lawrence made, which I would just try and, add a little bit of clarity, if I, if I may, because I think this is somewhere that the lawyers will look at, is, is when did Rugby Union decide that that three-week stand, mandatory stand-down, which Lawrence talked about, was okay to reduce to six days if under the rights medical supervision? Um, and that was 2011, that six-day return to play protocol was introduced. Now, as I said, I talked about Bill Beaumont in '82. You know, there was definitely enough knowledge FL case uh, by then to understand in rugby union that there were potentially long-term implications certainly there was no evidence to say that there was less to worry about concussion than we, than we previously thought and yet <laughs> at the same time they shortened the of time that it was possible for a professional player to return to co- play so I would also share Lawrence's concern there around that and I suspect that will be an issue that they looked at highlight and understand behind that decision
1: it seems to me it's it's clear the game has got to do something what do you think the next month six months year is
4: going to look like well first of all um everyone every parent every kid girls boys women who want to play the game uh or thinking of coming into it will have read all these headlines now that is a fact there's no there's no how they interpret them is one thing, but I think first of all we've got to be seen to be acting for the great community game and for the kids. I spent a lot of my life on Sunday mornings, 20 20 seasons altogether, trying to get kids to play and sharing with their parents all the greatness of rugby, uh, and I still think that. But um, when you got um, you know what parents are like, you're talking dementia and things like that, and people who are 40. Doesn't matter how this court case ends, that image is now in front in front of us, so you cannot get away from that. But I'd like, first of all, uh, World Rugby, they've got protocols. They've got a lot. They've worked hard on it. OK, one or two of them may be showboaters, but they have worked hard on it. They've got protocols. They've done the best they can. As Lawrence said, there was an independent man on Saturday who, who, who shepherded uh, crooked a player off the field, which is excellent. But you cannot start playing the white knight on his charger when there is still such a phenomenal number of rugby matches played, way over the top. There are too many, and especially too many, international matches. International matches played outside windows and things like that. Three international matches played at the end of a season on tours. Four warm-up games for the World Cup. You must be joking. And this thing about, oh, training load. Well, if you haven't got a game on the weekend, you haven't got to bother with your training load. There's only as many club games as there ever were. And blame blimey, are they so much better than no than international matches?
3: I just wonder whether there's, um, you know, thinking about, I think it was Sam that mentioned about, you know, the stories you hear about in training. Obviously, you know, I can only go from my own experience and I've played in a, a number of different teams, but like to think as a player, you have an, an opportunity to shape the way that the training is laid out for you. Now, you know, I don't know how much, to, to what degree the training these days in professional game is, is coach led or it's player driven. But, um, you know, it's fascinating. I, I always hear stories about how other clubs trained and thought to myself, how you even get on the field on a Saturday, quite frankly, because surely the whole idea of a game of rugby is to win the game on Saturday. So once you work that bit out, then... when you plan your training week you work backwards from there and you know there's no medals given out on a Tuesday or Wednesday so you don't need to smash the living daylights out of each other and I just wonder whether the sport has a independent scrutiny um, you know kind of watchdog that maybe goes into each club or each national team you know during the week and uh, and actually analyses the training that that goes on because I reckon if you did what you'd find from from club to club, from country to country, from continent to continent, that it would be vastly different. And, you know, is there, a, is there a set of principles and guidelines that World Rugby's laid out for professional or amateur rugby clubs or any rugby club, actually, on the maximum number of hours you should be training, for instance? You know, is there the maximum number of minutes that you should be allowed to full contact in a non-match environment? I'm not so sure that the, those guidelines exist at the moment. I think it's very no. much...
1: They don't. We, we need we need stuff like
3: that now. I think it's very much let down to the, um, you know, passed down to the individual. And some of these coaches are qualified level four, level whatever they are coaches. Some of them aren't. And and unless the players step in and go, enough is enough, you know, these things get pushed and pushed and pushed. So I think there are, you know, I fully accept what, what's being said here, but I think there are more things that can be done to, to make the game safer. What we've seen in the last year or so is this kind of, a uh, real desire to remove the, 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 you know, to lower the tackle height. And I think, you know, slowly but surely that message is getting across. And, and already I think we have a safer game than we had maybe 12, 18 months ago. But I think more can be done, as Steve has said, to limit the number of games, to limit the number of collisions in training, um, to limit the time, and maybe just to put a framework around what what is. I mean, in the same way as, I mean, I don't particularly like Ofsted, measuring sport, exercise, wellbeing and nutrition might help rather than measuring how many A's, B's and C's our kids get. But what they are there for is a, is a kind of a, a controller of what happens within schools. And and is there, a, is there anyone that controls and measures what happens within independently within, within rugby clubs? And, and the other point we really do have to, and world rugby does have to take seriously is the, you know, the duty of care. I mentioned myself that the club has a duty of care to you, but you as a player have a duty of care to yourself and to your, and to your other teammates. But is enough being done to look after people after they finish their rugby careers, other than the RPA, who, I have to say, go above and beyond to look after its players. And we've got great examples of that. Does anyone from any of the clubs, Steve Thompson played for five clubs, six clubs, did any one of those clubs phone him up after, his, after he terminated his contract and say, is there anything we can do to help you? Because we reckon you might have you know, been bashed around quite a bit. And the answer is no. So I think there's a lot more that can be done to safeguard and protect future players. Sam, St-
1: Steve just uh, touched upon one of the, the crucial things that, that rugby has to um, grasp at the moment is the fact that there, there is a, a, an army of, of parents um, out there wondering if their kids should be playing at the weekend. There's also a, a, a probably an army of school kids who are desperate to play when, they, when, they get, when COVID lifts and they're allowed to, but wondering if they should do. So for me, one of the first things that should be happening within, within the week is... Um, World Rugby and the in the federations should be putting out some information as to what is the exact situation. Are your kids in danger? So my understanding of of rugby up to the age of about fourteen or fifteen, rugby is no more dangerous than a game of football, and it's only when the boys get bigger and the collisions uh, start getting worse that that, that that there can be any danger at all. So mm-hmm. Lawrence, just shaking your head as if you don't agree. I, I mean, I. I I think I'm factually right there so Sam what's what's your what's your view on that because this is really important people
2: need yeah, to know I think one way that I have been able to keep this conversation going slotty is is by the fact that I am at no point saying rugby should be banned rugby should be taken out of schools I absolutely love the sport of rugby it's in my blood you know I grew up playing it I've spent my life, my adult life, watching it. I spent a lot of my more risky student days drinking and watching Lawrence and enjoying the spectacle of this sport. I love it to its core. And I would encourage parents to let their children play rugby. And I also echo a lot of the comments that Lawrence has made on this podcast around the fact that rugby has moved a lot further than other sports. And it definitely has. There's no question about that. It is further down the track in understanding this issue than pretty much any other sport bar boxing in the UK. I would argue that's probably and almost certainly because there's a bigger issue within the sport than there are in other sports but that's not to say it shouldn't be commended for the work that it's done and a lot of the work um, you know since 2013 has been very impressive and I would encourage parents to let their children play the sport as long as they're confident in the measures that whether it's the school or the club that they're putting them in that environment, that they're going to look after them. If they get a head knock, they come off the field. You know, one of the most important people in this whole conversation is a guy called Peter Robinson, who lost his son, Ben, uh, you know, back in 2011. I hope that's the right, that's the right year. If not, Peter, I apologise, but... You know, Ben was a young man, a teenager, playing an excellent schoolboy rugby player playing in Northern Ireland who lost his life after repeatedly getting concussed on the field, suffering second impact syndrome. And Peter says if one person around that field had understood and been educated on concussion and been able to recognise the signs, then his son would still be alive today. You know, the risk involved in rugby. The bravery required to, to take the field, the camaraderie that's engendered by playing as part of a team and putting your body on the line. I'll never forget the picture of Lawrence on the that was used as a Nike advert back in 1994. I think after his first tour of South Africa, where his his whole body, his back of his back was covered in stub marks. You know, coming off the field. Having taken a, an old-fashioned shoeing is, is part of the reason we we all played the sport or all watched the sport. We respect that bravery and it's a thrill to be part of that. But also you have to then recognise that there are knock-on effects to that and the sport needs to be really smart on this. And I think it's getting there, but I guess the big question that's going to come back to is, did it move fast enough? I don't think any of us here have the information at hand to say yes or no, but... And just one final little point I would make as well, because I do agree with Lawrence that players have to take care of themselves. But I think probably if you were captain of England and had, you know, 25, 30 caps for your country at the age of 24, 25, it's a lot easier to make your mark and have a very strong, charismatic personality and are confident in your ability. than that you're in a very different position to argue the toss with doctors directors of rugby as to how you should shape your training and I think a two-year contract for a 20-year-old is quite a vulnerable position to be in and I guess that's where I'd like to see the RPA empowered more I think probably issues around funding for the RPA aren't for this call but I think you know I'd like to see doctors and the RPA massively empowered I think the RPA have an opportunity here to essentially if I could use a sort of military terminology but take some ground back here because i just don't think they've had enough of a voice around the table since the sports term professional and they should do because if without the players the sport is nothing and i also sorry just while i finish my run i agree with steve as well we can't as much as many games as we do it's absolutely crazy how much how much rugby these guys are asking
3: well i couldn't agree more on, on the uh, but i mean the players need to need to their, their voice needs to be heard um, but also <laughs> the other side of, of professional rugby is that there's a number of players who play way too much rugby and there's a number of players who don't play enough. When you're in the professional kind of ranks, you, you, you've got to hear everyone's voice as well. There's guys who are playing too much and getting paid too much because they're being forced to play lots and lots of games. And then there's guys probably who would argue they're not paid enough and, and don't play enough. So totally agree with you on that one. The other interesting debate that this conversation throws up is when we talk about is rugby doing enough I don't think it is I mean it is a sport for all shapes and sizes but my son's played a lot of junior rugby a lot of mini rugby and even from the age of eight you know when I used to introduce him down to Richmond Sam there were players on that pitch that were a lot bigger than him and even from that age you know clearly there's the the contact is monitored but as, as players start to move to that kind of early teens and and, and moving into youth rugby, the, the size differentiation between players can be quite considerable. When you go down to New Zealand and you see the size of some of the islanders, that the size of them compared to a native New Zealander is enormous. So, you know, New Zealand moved very quickly to to make its age group rugby weighted and uh, and and sized. Um, I'm not sure whether that's right or wrong, but I'd like a bit more of a conversation around that this side of the equator because. You know, when Billy Vinopola was 14, you know, he was running over the top of, you know, young kids from a very early age. And, 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 and I just think there's more we can do to educate, you know, people a lot younger possibly than, uh, you know, I'm not trying to shout and, and find problems with the game. I'm trying to try and sort of shout and try and f- help find solutions, because I think there is more that we can do to, to protect the sport that we all love.
4: One very brief thing, uh, World Rugby, the governing body. We have not had a single grandee come up this last week. The, the biggest controversy we've had for years, the secrecy there is incredible. Every time they do something about the laws, they take it inside and discuss it themselves. They're now having a restructuring, but they appointed the people who are doing the restructuring themselves. Isn't it uh, not time, Sam, where World Rugby identified the leading practitioners at, at, at the top of the game, the top of their game, in these medical matters and actually sat down with them instead of taking it all in-house and making up their own mind because their record in being public about things is absolutely catastrophic. When was the last time there was a World Rugby Press Conference, Owen? A really big one. Six years ago, I would like them to come out and explain themselves, explain where they get their medical science from, and uh, I'd like them to be open to other medical science. That.
2: i completely agree with that Stephen. I, I i attended a player welfare symposium in in paris last year which was really interesting i wrote an article for sunday times off the back yeah. of it um and i think the challenge for rugby is actually looking outside the sport and actually and this is this is the same in so many industries by the way this isn't just a rugby specific problem but i think if, and I think probably the one of the people that used to do this better than ever, anyone was probably Clive Woodward, you know, that was prepared to actually go outside of the sport to hear different thinking um, that isn't just a sort of parroting of, of what you've already heard time after time after time. And I think, you know, I I really, I would also like to just add, I really don't think this is the end of rugby. The NFL is still a vibrant, you know, engaging sport after what they went through in their court case. But I think what has to happen in rugby is is for us to understand that all the research and control of data can't happen within the sport and that there has to be some external voices to listen to who can give best, best practice. You know, I've talked about boxing. That's a sport that really has acknowledged the long-term risks over the years. It's not a sport that I particularly enjoy. It's not a sport I... would i I'd, I'd, I'd want my kids to play but I respect the guys who get into the ring that is for sure and I think you know let's let's open ourselves up as a sport and and be inclusive and 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 think differently and challenge ourselves and try and think of different practices that we can use and 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 just shift the culture not fundamentally shift the culture of rugby because we don't want to do that but I think just change the emphasis a little bit and progress on a on a way that that enables the sport to flourish and for parents to to introduce their kids and carry on playing what we all know is it's a fantastic sport to be involved in. And
3: I think there's a, there has to be a uh, a recognition that, that rugby has moved a dial significantly over the last 20 years. You know, if I think back to, so the training schedules, when the game first went pro in 1995, they were you know, very, very disorganized, written on the back of a, a piece of rough paper. And, and then you went out there on the training field. They probably went on far too long. The, the level of contact within that training session was far too great because there was not an understanding of of, of how to prepare necessarily uh, uh, quite in the way you should. If I fast forward to sort to of towards the end of my rugby career, where you know, contact would have been limited to make full contact in training would have been limited to maybe 10 or 15 minutes, you know, across a two or three day period. Significantly movement. Chris
1: Boyd of Northampton Saints last week asked how, how much contact they do each week. He says he does two 90 second blocks a week. So, I mean, you've, you've described how it's gone, went down in your career. It's gone down even further. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And I, and I think, I think, but it, but it does need to continue to be, you know, what is the right amount of contact uh, during the week? you know, versus the number of contacts that they're receiving, you know, at the weekend, you could argue that sometimes, you know, if you don't prepare yourself enough, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble, you know. So have we got it right as a sport? I don't know. You know, is there, is there some sort of framework that each club operates under the same? And, and I would argue that it probably doesn't because depending on who you're coached by, you know, that Chris Boyd, has is, is been quite conservative, but other coaches like to have a lot more contact in their training yeah, sessions. Yeah. So I think a lot more can be done as, as, as we as we say, and uh, you know, but it, but it needs the input of everyone, including the players, including the RPA, including the governing bodies, and you know, we need to safeguard the, the sport and the players of the future. And, and it's it's not just at the professional end of the game. I, I worry about the protocols at the amateur side of the game where there is no funding. You know, and I go back to that important point you know is the amateur rugby brain wired any different to the professional rugby brain and the answer is you know fundamentally it's not but are the principles and framework that exists to protect those two sets of players vastly different at the moment and the answer is yes
1: all right gents I think we're going to be d- discussing this for um for days weeks and probably years so, so thanks for that uh, it's just a debate that's gonna gonna roll on and and rugby will change but just on a slightly more more frivolous side, there was some there was some rugby played at the weekend, and it made the game look a little bit better. Jonesy, what did you what did you think of
4: it? It was the biggest transformation in one week the games ever had. Uh, <laughs> for games like Claremont and Brist- versus Bristol, Ulster, Toulouse, they were just absolutely joyous. So so were Exeter, not very joyous for Glasgow. So I just thought that the breakout into club rugby was brilliant, there was genuine attacking skill, there was effort, there was energy, there was pace, and God, that last week, did we ever need it? So... Rugby's alive and well, as long as it's safe.
1: All right. Thanks for that. Thanks, Jonesy. Thanks, Lawrence and uh, Sam. Great to have you back in. Uh, Yeah, as Jonesy said, there is some rugby that's worth watching and and that we can all enjoy. So uh, another big European weekend coming up next weekend. uh, And then, then, of course, we'll be back next Monday to discuss it all. Well, we'll probably discuss more about uh, rugby for the present and not whether rugby's got a future thank you for listening an important episode of the ruck please recommend and um, we'll be back thank you very much